Welcome to the City View Church podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, here we go. We are now entering into week two of our study of the book of Revelation. Um, I, I, some of you might have missed last week, and if you did, we have a couple resources for you. One, we have um, a timeline that will come in handy. Um, we're going to look at it uh, to later on this, this morning. So if you did not get one of these when you came in, um, raise your hand in just one second. Um, and then also, um, we have these Revelation Journal Bibles. So this is the book of Revelation, and it also has journaling pages. So if you did not get one of these last week because we ran out, raise your hand and let the ushers know which thing you're needing, and we want to make sure you get those in your hand. If you just forgot your journal Bible today, and you're going to take a second one, shame on you. Shame, shame. Just kidding. Well, a little bit. Don't take one, please. Um, I mean, if you lost it, the Bible, just, I, I won't say anymore. Let the ushers know what you need, um, but we have those for you. No guilt. If you seriously lost it, forgot it somewhere, you can have another one. I'll forgive you. Jesus will, too, I think. Um, <clears throat> but I want to I remind everyone as we are continuing our study, remember that the book of Revelation, for, for many and for some, it, it can be a scary book. It can be a book people don't read. It can be a book people avoid. Um, it can be a book that we get, we get focused on the wrong thing. The book of Revelation, the whole focus is Jesus, not the Antichrist, not the end times, but Jesus. This is a book, it's, a, it's, it's, it's the culmination of what God started in, in Genesis and then how God finishes it in the book of Revelation. This book is all about Jesus as the great King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's about his kingdom come and his will be done, not the Antichrist, not who the bad guy is at the end. He gets a couple chapters in the middle of the book. Jesus gets the whole thing. Jesus doesn't just get the book of Revelation. The entire Bible is about him. But for some reason, when we get to the book of Revelation, people get scared and then they lose focus on who. So I just wanna remind us, as we study this book, over the next few months, Jesus is our focus. Jesus is the victor. Let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're doing in and through our lives. And Jesus, I ask that you'd speak to us through your word today as we study Revelation 1. Encourage us, strengthen us, and help us, Lord, to just focus on you um, in every area of our life. Jesus, I pray a blessing upon churches throughout the valley. Lord, I thank you for all the churches on Greenway Road. Um, Lord, I think of the ones close to us, my friend Aaron over at Jesus Church, my friend Eric over at the bridge, my friend Dan over at um, Pure Heart. Um, Lord, I ask a blessing upon them. Lord, I pray you'd speak through those men this morning, um, and God, that they would encourage your people. God, I thank you that we're not in this alone, but we are a community of believers with one focus. That's you telling your story so that others might come to saving faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Jeremiah. I'm the lead pastor here at City View, and I'm excited for what God has for you. Uh, Revelation is a, is a fun book. It can, it's a, it's, it can be a difficult book for some to understand. It, there are some things in it that as we're going to get to it, you may have questions going, what does it mean here? And I'm going to have to say, I don't know. Because there are some things I just don't know. We, we, it's, it's not super clear. Um, and so we're going to get through the things that we can. I'm going to answer the questions that you may have. 
And um, that's the plan. So, um, <clears throat> so if, if you got one of these, I want to encourage you, one, take notes, two, write questions. If you have questions, you can email them to me, um, jeremiah at cityviewphx.com. You can email those to me, and I will try to answer them to the best of my ability. Last week, we got a couple questions on how do you take notes? Because I know some people, we just don't know how to take notes. We weren't taught in school. Um, we don't know how to do it, and that's okay. I'm going to give you some, just a very basic understanding, very basic class on note-taking. If you see it behind me, write it down. Okay? If you hear me say, underline it, underline it in your, this book here, okay? Write it down on the right-hand side. That means if I'm telling you to underline it, that means I'm telling you that's important, okay? Your teachers did the same thing in school, but we just didn't pay attention. Um, some of us did, good job, those of you who did. Um, some of us, if you're like me, I didn't learn to take notes until, gosh, I don't know, probably when I went to college um, and I started writing sermons. I'm like, hey, I should probably learn how to write notes. Um, I was a terrible student. Um, should have paid attention in school. But that's this book, okay? So if it's behind me, write it down. If I tell you this is, if I repeat it or say underline it, that means it's important. So if you guys got these, cool. If you didn't get one, you still want one, um, raise your hand, we'll get those to you. Let's get started. We are picking it up in verse nine. So if you missed last week, watch last week's sermon or listen to the podcast. Um, we went through verses one through eight, focused all on Jesus. Verses nine now through the end of the chapter. Again, the focus is Jesus. Verse one, or nine, verse nine, <clears throat> sorry, chapter one. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island of Pat, called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So here, again, we're told who the author is. Now, this would be a thing you'd wanna take a note on. The author is John, the disciple of Jesus. He wrote this around 95 B.A.D., 95 A.D. That might be a note you might wanna write down. That's when he wrote this. And so John is, is telling us who he is, and he's, he's describing himself here. And, and for any of you who've read the New Testament, New Testament, typically when one of the authors talks about themselves, they, they typically, like Paul uses the word Paul, an apostle. Paul, or they might use, John used the word elder or bondservant. Typically, what the author is doing when they're writing those things is, is they're telling you who they are. They're giving you their, why they have the authority to say what they have to say. They're giving you sort of a title. Hey, this is why I have the authority to confront you on the issue that I'm writing you about. John's not doing that here. John is coming in going, I get you. I understand you. I've been through it. I'm walking through the hard time. That's why he says, John, I, John, your brother. I, John, your brother. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation, the kingdom and perseverance was just to come. He wants to come alongside and encourage them and, and, and let them know that he understands them in this relationship that he has with them. He says, your brother, your fellow friend, believer in Jesus. 
He says, I, I want to share with you that I'm a fellow partaker in this tribulation, not meaning the tribulation that we're going to read about in Revelation. Just he's speaking specifically about the current difficult times that they're going through as believers of Jesus Christ in that time. The tribulation he's referring to is there's an emperor at that time. This might be a note you want to write down. There's an emperor at that time. His name is Emperor Domitian. Domitian. He was one of the worst rulers of Rome. He killed so many Christians and he did so much persecution during that time. And so this tribulation he's referring to is, is that guy. He says, I get you. I'm in this tribulation too. I'm walking through the hard times as well. That's why John is on this island called Patmos, which we'll get to in just a second. And if you look at, he, he writes this progression. He says, this tribulation, kingdom, perseverance, or patience in Christ. It's this progression of, of sort of how we go through life sometimes. Tribulation, which helps us focus on the kingdom, which gives us patience to walk the walk we're walking. And so he, he's wanting them to know, hey, I'm going through it to you guys. The very darkness, you know, that we walk in sometimes might bring some of the greatest triumph. See, John is writing this book in one of his darkest hours as a, of a disciple. He's writing this book while he's going through a very difficult time as a follower of Jesus. And when you look at other, other authors throughout the Bible, many of them wrote in their darkest hours. God spoke to them of, of some of the greatest things in their hardest times. Moses wrote the Torah, where? while wandering in the wilderness. David wrote the Psalms where? While running for his life, fleeing King Saul. You have the prophets that are writing many of their prophecies like Jeremiah. No, he's writing this prophecy and he's told, you know what, they're not gonna listen to you, they're gonna hate you and you're probably gonna be thrown in prison. But yet he still writes. You have Paul who wrote many of, much of the gospel, or not the gospels, he wrote much of the, the epistles. Where did he write them from? Prison. You have Peter who wrote First and Second Peter. Do you know when he wrote those? At the end of his life, not at the best of his life. And then you have John here, who writes this while banished as a 90-year-old man on an island that was used as a rock quarry He's 90. Any, do I have anybody who's 90 in here? No. Can you imagine if you, those of you who are closer, if you were banished to an island as a prisoner to chisel away rock that was going to be used on the mainland? John writes this book there. God writes his greatest stories in our life through some of the greatest trials we walk through. Just think, the darkness you are walking through right now just might be one of the best stories you will ever tell. You don't know. Here's something I want you to know. Your greatest victory might come during your darkest hours. John writes one of the greatest books in one of his darkest hours. And John tells this church, he says, guys, I get it. I get it. 
I get what we're going through. I get it. I get it. Verse 10. John says, And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. John says, I'm writing on the Lord's day. There's two basic ideas on what this could mean, the Lord's day. One of the ideas is, is, to act, is actually the, a phrase that was used throughout the Old Testament called the day of the Lord, which was speaking of the coming final judgment of Jesus. And so John, if this were the case, that would mean John would be um, changed, he would be moved, pushed to the future, transferred over into the future in some kind of vision state-like mindset where John is then seen now, he sees everything that is to be the day of the Lord. And so he's moved to that day in the future. That could be, very likely could be, that could be the answer. The second thought is that he is speaking of the first day of the week. That John is saying when he says, and on the Lord's day, that he's saying, I'm writing this, or I started writing this, because many believe that he did not write this in one day. Many believe that it was a series of either the Lord's day, Sundays, or it was on, it was just a series of time while he was on the island. We're unclear. But if it was on the Lord's Day, if it was on a Sunday, which that phrase really wasn't used until later on in church history, it could mean that. We don't know. It really doesn't matter. I'm just giving you some thoughts. But if he did write it on the Lord's Day, I want you to think about his situation. He's imprisoned. Why? He told us, because of the word of the Lord. Because he preached the gospel. That's why he's there. And it says, if it's on the Lord's day, that means he purposed in his heart, you know what? On Sunday, it's God's day, and I will worship him. Some of us, we have a hard time getting up because we had a rough night's sleep the night before. Imagine him, a 95-year-old man, sleeping in a rock quarry. I highly doubt the beds are that nice. I highly doubt the beds were that nice back then, period. Okay? If we're going to be real, I doubt it's like my... Temp- I have a Tempur-Pedic. It's, it's old. I need to get a new one, but still. Any, how many of you love your bed? Who loves their bed? How many of you hate your bed? Go just save up money and buy a new one. There's lots of good beds out there. I love my Tempur-Pedic. And if you ever go to the Arizona Biltmore... Um, they have, I think, some of the best beds in the entire world. Just, yeah, I'm just... Sometimes I get spoiled and I get to go there, but I love my Tempur-Pedic. I highly doubt John had a Tempur-Pedic. <laughs> but what I want us to get is John made it a purpose on whatever day this was that he was focused on the Lord. That God got his first, not his last. And John, he, it said there in, in verse 10, it says, in, in the spirit of the Lord, on the Lord's day, I heard, uh, I heard behind me a loud voice, a loud of a trumpet, and the voice said, write. John is told to write 12 different times. Little note, if you want to write that down. Circle the word, write. John was told to write 12 times. He was told not to write one time. 
Revelation chapter 10, verse 4. God told him, do not write this down. So we don't know what that was. But 12 times he's commanded, write these things. Because God wants this message. When Daniel received his prophecy, he was told not to. He was told to seal it and wait till later. John is told to write it so others might know. And then here, John tells us the seven churches. He told us earlier, he's writing this to seven churches. Now, as we come to the end of this first chapter, he tells us who those seven churches were. These seven churches represent, one, seven different places, but they also represent seven different states of, of where we are as people and where the church can be as a church. Some churches are lazy. Some churches are doing great. Some churches are hyper-focused on making sure they do things, but they lose the sight of Jesus. And so we have this sight of these seven churches, and John is writing specifically to them. And if you look behind me, I have a map here. These are the seven churches. So you got Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, my hand is shaky, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I did a little thing. I, I got out um, Google Maps, and I went to see if I could find all of them on Google Maps, which you can. Look at this. This is Ephesus here, and then you can't see all these things, which neither can I. Um, the next one's here, and you got another one up here. You got another one here. Sardis is here. Somebody's over here, and Laodicea is here. And then I said, what if I wanted to walk to all of them? I did the research for you, so you don't have to wonder. <laughs> Six days. Actually, five days and 23 hours, if you want to be exact. But some of us are going to stop for potty breaks and stuff. So six days to walk. These cities... We're like postal cities, sort of like, you know, how you have your post office and everything gets distributed from that post office in a certain region. That was the idea of these cities. These cities were hubs where information would go out to the rest of the Roman Empire. So God is not, not like frivolous. God is not a God who just doesn't have a plan. God is a God who has a plan and a purpose. He is efficient. Have you guys ever been to churches where it's just sort of like free for all? They just sort of go, it's like no plan. God is the God of plans. He created the heavens and the earth in six days with a plan in mind. He didn't create it just like, well, you know, it'll work at some point. Like you can't go in, if you're building a house, you can't go in and have the electrician go in before anything else gets put in. Hey, put the electricity in the walls. There are no walls. Well, then put the walls up first. Well, you have no foundation. Well, well then put the foundation. Well, you don't have any plumbing. So wait, there's a whole plan? Yes, there's a plan. God had a plan. Oh, my map's already gone. There it is. So God had a plan. He wanted to go to these cities because he knew from here it could impact the rest of the region so that the churches might be changed, so their hearts might be ready for what God has for them. And so John, as he's hearing this message, he then turns to see who is speaking to him in verse 12. It says, then I, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And so he sees, he sees his first thing that he sees is he sees these seven golden lampstands. And, and we learn that they're in a circle in just a little bit. We're going to learn they're in a circle because we're going to learn that Jesus is in the middle of them. 
That I, I, in my mind, I always pictured them like in a row in the back or something like that. I don't know if you've ever read Revelation, how you ever pictured it. But in my mind, for some reason, I just I didn't picture it in a circle because I, I guess I missed the point that Jesus was in the middle. Or I heard Jesus in the middle. I just never pictured it was a circle. But Jesus is probably standing in the circle. And so we have these seven golden lampstands. And it says, and he sees Jesus in his glory. Verse 20 of chapter 1 tells us, defines for us these seven golden lampstands. It says in verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels, the seven church, and the, uh, to the seven churches. And it says, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So that's who these seven, so that might be a note you want to write. The seven lampstands equals the seven churches. Now, God has called these churches, why are they lampstands? Because God has called us as a church, every church, to be a light. They're not candles. Candles burn out. They're lampstands. Meaning they were these oil lamps that were found in the temple. And the oil typically throughout scripture symbolized the filling, filling up of the Holy Spirit. And so God is speaking to these churches, these lampstands. He wants them to know that the only way you will be a light to the world is if you are full of the Holy Spirit. And that goes the same for us. The only way we will be a light to our communities, the only way we will be a light to our neighbors, the only way we will be a light to our coworkers, the only way we will be a light to our friends is if we are full of the Holy Spirit. If we are doing it on our own, we will struggle. We will always mess up even when we are full with the Holy Spirit, but when you're full of the Holy Spirit, there's a power that you will receive that will allow you to impact those around you. Amen. And then it says, in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. So we see Jesus is in the middle of these lampstands, in the middle, which is where he should be in our lives in the middle, not a side hustle. Jesus shouldn't just be something we do on Sundays. He should be the person that's at the center of every bit of our life. The one we look to, the one we cry out to, like we prayed as Tony led us today. So John sees Jesus in the middle and John now describes Jesus to him, or to us. He says he was one like the Son of Man, which was a term used for the Messiah throughout the Gospels. And then he tells us what he looked like, what he was wearing. I don't know about you, but I, I like descriptive things. Do you like to try to picture it? And I don't know how many of you can close your eyes and see things. Some of you, like, you can't see anything until somebody draws you a picture, and I'm, that's okay. Difficult for you. I, I like to close my eyes and see how it is. I, just, I, I, can, I have a, a weird imagination. Um, that's why I like this little thing right here because this helps. The, I like to draw something a little, little about me. For my kids' birthdays, my, my middle son turned 15. Whenever my kids, this is a total sidestep, has nothing to do with my sermon. Um, uh, but we draw pictures for my kids. I, we always draw things they like. 
And I love the draw. This, the, the pastor who wrote this commentary, I, I, we took this from his commentary, it's free online now. He drew all the pictures. His name is Clarence Larkin. He wrote this in 1919. And that's why you have it, because it's just so creative, but it has nothing to do with any of this. So Jesus. So John is describing Jesus, and he first describes his robe, and he says his robe went all the way to his feet. The robes that went all the way to your feet in those days were robes worn by two people, a priest or a king. John is speaking specifically of a priestly robe. We find the definition of this in Exodus 28 and Leviticus 16, verse 4. I encourage you, write that down if you're taking notes. Write that down for this verse, for verse um, 13. Read this later. That's what I want you to do. It tells us about this priestly robe and it tells us about the golden sash. So you can picture Jesus wearing this, this long, beautiful robe with this golden sash going across him, this gold, bright gold sash. That's what we picture first. And then for us to have this understanding of the kind of priest Jesus is, Hebrews chapter four tells us this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to a throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I know for some of us, Maybe we grew up in more of a Catholic background and a priest meant somebody that you could not relate to, meant somebody that was always better than you, meant somebody that you could never really talk to, meant somebody you only confessed to, but you didn't see them because they were in their confessional. It meant somebody that, that was above, maybe even spoke a different language to you, wasn't relational to you. But here in Hebrews, as, as he's trying to, as he, the whole Bible is trying to tell us more and more about Jesus. Hebrews tells us about this priest that John is describing to us, this priest that can relate to us, this priest that can sympathize with us, this priest that, that left, he was the greatest priest, yet he left everything for us. This is our high priest. And then John tells us more. He says his head, verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, like the snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, and when, <clears throat> when it has been made to, or burnished bronze, when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Earlier it said trumpets. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. It says his head was, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire. Last year, we studied the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter seven, we see the same description that Daniel sees of the Messiah when he's getting ready to, to get this great vision. Daniel calls him the ancient of days in Daniel chapter seven, verse nine, and then you can continue throughout the rest of that chapter, it talks about the Messiah. But I wanna read verse nine to us this morning. It says, Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat and his vesture was like white snow 
and the hair of his head like pure wool. And his throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. So you have this, this image of this powerful creator. Not a timid Jesus. But a powerful one. It says his hair or his head was white as snow, which symbolized Christ's holiness, his pureness, the, the eternity of the Son of Man, his divine nature. You might want to write some of those things down. His eyes a flame of fire. Because we might read this and go, well, what does that mean, his eyes flame of fire? Like, he's just burning like ring of fire, like the Johnny Cash song? Is that what I'm picturing right now? It's, it, it's more powerful. His eyes being a flame of fire speak of the searching righteousness, the divine judgment of Jesus. This is not, this is not the Jesus who came and like held little kids on his lap. It's the same Jesus, but it's different like emotion. You know, there's those times where it's like Christmas time and kids are all coming around and then there's the times that they mess up and then I sort of have to like help them understand that it's, it's serious time. That's this moment of Jesus. This is the mighty King Jesus. He's the same Jesus, but we're seeing a different side of him. Eyes a flame of fire. It says his feet were like burnished bronze, and this symbolized glowing red hot feet, speaking of, the, of Jesus coming through his church and exercising judgment. That's what's happening. Jesus is gonna be walking through the seven churches saying, here's what I see that needs to be changed. It says his voice like many waters speaks of his power, his sovereignty, his supremacy. The voice that created all things, the voice that calmed the storm, the voice that is coming to make things right. I know for some of us, how many of you have ever thought, God, why do you allow those bad things to happen? Why do you allow that, that person to molest that little child? Why do you allow rape? Why do you allow those people to do those heinous murders? Why do you allow those? Why do you, have you ever thought that? This Jesus will take care of that. Okay, that's what he's going to do. He is gracious, it says in 1 Peter or 2 Peter, he is long-suffering, desiring all to come to him. He is patiently waiting, patiently pursuing, going after us, but there will be a day as we look at Revelation where the consequences of sin and people's choices will come upon them and the wrath of God will be seen. We will see that, but that's not what he wants to do. He came first as Savior King. You see, the disciples wanted it to come like this first. But he came as Savior King. And even as we get to the end of this chapter, we're gonna see that he doesn't wanna be seen as the scary guy. He wants to be seen as the comforter. We'll get there in just a second. I don't wanna jump ahead of myself. And then it says these stars that are in his hands speak of Jesus being in control. These seven stars are speaking specifically of the, some believe maybe the, the seven, not really seven angels, the word actually in the Greek is, is the word for messenger, more like an elder or the pastor of the church is what is being spoken of here in Revelation. And so these seven messengers, these seven people that will be taking the message to the churches. And then it says, and out of his mouth, the two-edged sword, meaning divine judgment. 
There are two common swords in that time. The Romans typically used a shorter sword, which was used for like stabbing and, and close combat, things like this, and it would be used like this. There was that sword. That's the same kind of sword that is used in Hebrews chapter 4. You know the word where God is, God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword? This is a totally different kind of sword. This is not the same. That is speaking of the quickness, the piercingness of God's word, what it does to our hearts. That's what Hebrews chapter 4 speaks of. That's not what's being referred to here. This sword is another sword that would be used in battle, but it was a longer, bigger, heavier sword, more like a sword you might see in Braveheart, the destruction kind of sword, a sword that would be brought at you like this, which would mean a lot of pain instead of a lot of quick blows. It's a big destruction. This word sword is the word um, ram ramaphia. Ramaphia is the, is the Greek word for it, which means a heavy, sharp, destruction kind of sword. This word sword is used five times in the book of Revelation, meaning judgment is coming. And then John continues to describe what he sees, and he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have come and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So John is in this moment, he sees all this. Now we, we went through it slowly, but John sees this in a moment. And it says, and he falls down. One of my least favorite moments as a father is when I have to discipline my children. One of my favorite moments as a father is when, my, is when I don't even have to say anything. They know they messed up. And I just get to hug them. And I just get to love my kids and just hold them. I say, sob in my arms because they know they've messed up. John falls in fear of his Savior. And what does his Savior do? But he bends down. He puts his hand on him. He says, don't be afraid. But he really means he, what's really being said here. He says, stop being It's the comforting hand of Jesus. It's not the judgment hand. It's not the tap on the shoulder saying, I saw what you did. It's the hand that says, I see you and I love you. You don't have to be scared of what is to come. We see this comforting hand, this comforting words of Jesus throughout Scripture. This same idea, the same phrasing of don't be, don't be afraid. Almost any time somebody came into the presence of Jesus, of, of God and his glory, people would fall to his, to his feet in, in fear. And his first words out of his mouth, Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. Genesis chapter 26, verse 24. 
Judges chapter 6, verse 23. Matthew chapter 14. Write those down if you're taking notes. Read them later on. Matthew chapter 14, 27. You see them all behind me. Take a picture. It'll stay up there for a little bit. Take a picture if you need to. Write it down. That's something to write down. But every time these are here, right here, these verses, in each of those, there's a moment where somebody messed up. Somebody did something. God shows up. God shows them. And God says, don't be scared. Don't be afraid. I'm, don't be afraid. Don't be scared. This comforting Jesus offers. This, comforting, this comfort of Jesus is offered to all. And it's not based on who you are. It's not based on what you bring to the table. It's not based on how great you are. It's, it's based on who he is. And Jesus says, this is who I am. He says, I am, the, I, I am the great I am. This was used to define God throughout scripture. The first time is in Exodus chapter three, verse 14. When Moses is, he's run for his life. He's murdered somebody. He's done some terrible things and he feels like he's wasted his life and he could never be used by God again. And God finds him in the wilderness, shepherding sheep. And God's words to him are, I am. I am the great I am. I am your savior, your father, your king. I am. And Jesus says to John first, he says, I am. He's claiming, I am God. He says, I am the first and the last. This is used also throughout scripture. A couple verses are gonna be behind me. Isaiah chapter 44, verse six, and 48, verse 12, with the same phrasing. When Jesus says this, he is the first and the last. He is claiming that he is above all gods. All gods may come and go, but he stands forever. You see, people have believed in gods almost from the beginning. They've, they've put another God before them. Adam and Eve did. They wanted to be like God. And from that point on, and Jesus says, but I am the first and the last. I am the greatest of gods. I have always existed and I am always, I always will be. I am eternal, the only God. He says he is the living one. A couple verses that go with that. Take pictures. Just keep your phones out. Take pictures. Um, it's also in the YouVersion Bible app, Joshua 3.10 for Samuel, where Jesus uses this term, speaking of his eternal existence. He says he was dead and is alive forevermore. Once again, proof that the reason why this is so important, it's proof of who's speaking. This is helping us understand that this is Jesus speaking. And it says he holds the keys, meaning he holds the keys of life and death. He knows the moment you will be born. He knows the moment you will die. Nothing takes him by surprise. He understands all things. He holds those keys. And then we come to verse 19. Therefore, again, he's told, write. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after these things. This is the outline of the book of Revelation. 
It's, it's one of the only books where we're given the exact outline of how this book, of how John is to understand it and how we are to understand it. And here, you guys all have this. Some of you are like, it's really hard to read. I'm sorry, I can't. There's, it's the best one. Um, but he says, the things which are, which speak of what John is talking about right there. So it's that first image that you see on your, your picture with the, the lampstands and all that. The things which are, that's chapter one. Chapter one is the first part. You all have this. You don't need to take a picture of it. You can go get one of these back there because it'd be way easier to read. Oh, you can have it on your phone too. I can send you a copy if you want it. We can email it to you. And he says the, and he says the things, um, where is it? Right, the th- no, the things which you see is first. That's chapter one, the things which you see. Chapter two, the things which are. That's what, oh, okay, that, you can go with that. The things which are, which speak of these seven churches. Chapters two and three. And then he says, the things which will take place, chapters four through 22. Some believe that we're already living through a lot of revelation, that we're somewhere towards the end of it. I don't think so. I'll explain that more later. But this is speaking of future. Jesus in all his glory is wanting John to share with the churches not to get distracted by the things which will happen around them. We saw, we have seen that happen over and over and over again, haven't we, believers? We've gotten distracted by presidents, we've gotten distracted by wars, we've gotten distracted by so many things. And then we forget that there's friends and family that don't know Jesus. Satan would love for us to live distracted lives. He even loves for us to be distracted by this book and miss Jesus in Revelation. He would love for us to get super hyper-focused on this one book and miss Jesus. Hard times will come, you guys. Difficult times will come. Dark times will come. But Jesus says, don't be scared. He's in control. Some of you, you might be in the middle of writing a book like Revelation feeling like you're stranded on an island of Patmos. Maybe you are struggling in parenting. Maybe you're struggling in, in life, wondering when, am I, when will I be married? Maybe you're struggling in, in just your marriage. You're going, man, this is the toughest. Maybe you're struggling, you're, you're retired, and you're like, man, I thought it would be better, and it's not what I thought it would be. Maybe, I don't know what. You're struggling with your job. You hate your job. You love your job. I don't know, but you're walking through your dark hours, Just like John wrote this book, I just wanna remind you, your greatest victory might come during your darkest hours. You might see God do something amazing through this. Just watch for him. Pay attention. Jesus is the light. He's gonna guide you. He'll get you through. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good to us. 
you are the great and awesome King of kings and Lord of lords. Some of us might be scared of what is to come. Worrying about politics, finances, presidents, wars, rumors of wars. Jesus, I pray as John turned and focused on you, may our focus be on you as well. As John bowed in worship of you and you reached down and comforted him, Lord, I pray that we would bow and worship you. Lord, I ask for your comforting touch as well. Lord, you are the great I am. You are the everlasting God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, I thank you that you gave John such an amazing book through such a dark hour of his life. You gave Peter two amazing letters. You gave Paul amazing letters for us. You gave David some of the best songs we could sing all in their dark hours. So Jesus, for those of us who are walking in or coming out of, may our focus be on you. You know, for some of you today, maybe you're walking in the dark hours, but you don't have Jesus walking with you. You're walking in them alone. You feel alone, abandoned. You would love to know that Jesus is coming to comfort you. Jesus, he died on a cross over 2,000 years ago. The reason he did that is because we had a debt that needed to be paid and somebody had to pay it and you never could. And so he paid that debt by giving his life as a sacrifice for us so that we might be forgiven, so that our sins might be washed clean, so that our lives might be made right, so that we might have a relationship with God. that Jesus giving you life today, I ask that you pray with me. My words are, I'm just going to guide you. I'm more of a guide with words than my, my words don't, there's nothing special about my words. And so some of us might not know what to say. But if you want to make that decision to follow Jesus, if you want to make that decision to have Jesus in your life, pray with me. Say, Dear God, I believe in your son, Jesus. God, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes and I've, I've, I've sinned, Lord. And I ask for your forgiveness. I ask that you'd make me right. I believe, Jesus, that you died on a cross to forgive me. Jesus, I ask that you would be the leader of my life. Did you decide to follow Jesus while listening to this podcast today? We want to celebrate with you and help you with your next steps. 
click the link in the podcast description to get connected with a pastor and your next step. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to click that follow button and tune in next week for another great message.